Well, we're going to pick up where we lost, left off last time, and with God's help, we're going to make it to the end of this letter today that's pointing us to the end for which God made us. Our passage today is from 1 Peter chapter 5. You'll find that on page 1016 in the Blue Bibles in front of you. Well, last week we ended chapter 4 with how hard it is for God to save sinners. It was easy for God to say, let there be light, but it was hard for him to redeem darkness. Saving the ones he calls righteous cost him his blood, the blood of his own son, and this was unspeakably hard. We need to understand again this morning so that we can rightly hear how God does the hard thing of getting us to heaven and glory, and why he does the hard thing of making us humble for glory. So let me illustrate before we even start to set the table why it's hard for the righteous to be saved. And then Peter will show us that God has in fact done the hard thing to save us and get us to the end. So consider with me how how hard it was for Abraham, for example, to carry the knife up the mountain so that he could slay his own son, the son that he loves. Consider how hard it was for Isaac to carry the wood that he would be laid upon as an altar. Abraham and Isaac were willing to obey God. And by faith, they obeyed all the way up until the point where Isaac would have died. But then God said, stop. Thinking of this makes me tremble by how hard it would have been. I actually can't imagine how hard it was for the father to be ready to kill the son. How hard. For the son to die by the father's hand. How hard. But in the end, however hard this was, they didn't actually do it. Harder still was when God the Father and the Son actually did it. The same mercy that was shown to Abraham and Isaac was not for God to enjoy. How hard for the Son to put the cloak of sin upon himself and then watch the Father pour out his wrath with a knife of justice. How hard it was for Jesus to do the will of the Father. How hard it is for the righteous to be saved. Peter now, he saw Jesus in the garden, feeling the weight of this awful thing. And he heard him saying, not my will, but yours be done. Peter saw him crucified by the Romans, heard him say, Father, why have you forsaken me? Peter watched and heard something of how hard it is for the righteous to be saved. And he watched the Son of God do good and suffer according to God's will and entrust his soul to a faithful creator. And so we pick up here in chapter 5, verse 1, where we see Peter explain that he was a witness to this when he says our passage for today. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, 
not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who were in Christ. Church, let's pray. God, please help us to see in this text what you would have us to see of you. And then, please God, change us in the inner person to be holy as you are holy and to be drawn together as living stones around Jesus. Help us to hear by faith and respond in obedience the obedience that comes from faith. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, church, I have two points for us from our text this morning. This morning, um, The first point is that God will do the hard thing of getting us to heaven. He will do it by his mighty hand. And the second is that he will change us from the inside out to be ready for heaven. First, let's see how God will do the hard thing to save us and deliver us to heaven. We'll see this in three ways. First, he's the good shepherd who leads us to safe pastures and beside still waters. What he says in 5.1 to shepherds, the elders of the churches of Asia scattered throughout the Roman world, is in fact a reflection of his own heart's desire and purpose to gather us and deliver us to heaven. Here, Peter points believers back to Jesus, whom he saw suffer while doing good. And then he calls the elders to care for the church as she presses on in the hard work of entrusting themselves, their souls, to a faithful creator. Recognize what's happening here. God has just said how salvation is hard for himself. It cost him his son. But it is also hard Work for those who are being saved. Suffering and waiting and following Jesus through many troubles and toils and snares is hard work. And we have seen this. We've seen this truth in this letter, and we know it 
through real life. Yet God knows it's hard for us. And thus, he, he promises to never leave us or forsake us. He provides the spirits from heaven in verse 112 and elders from among us in verse 5-2 so that he can get us to the end. See verse 2? See how he exercises oversight among us? He, he sees and protects you. He sees you. Remember in verse 1-5 how he said that by his power he is guarding us through faith for salvation? Well, he's not doing that under compulsion, but willingly watching over you. Church, you are chosen according to his great mercy, as it says in verse 1-3. God does not save us under compulsion, but willingly because he chooses us. He doesn't do so for shameful gain. His gain is at the cost of his own blood. There's no shame with his gain, but justice and rightness of cause. And he does all this eagerly for you, dear saints. For the joy set before him, he endures the cross. See verse 5-3? God is in charge, but he is not domineering. He tells us to be holy, that is true, yes. But then what does he do? After he sets the highest bar to measure holiness and then the greatest consequence for failing to meet the bar? Well, we saw that in verse 318, that Jesus, our shepherd, suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And why? The scripture says, to bring us to God. Church, God is sovereign. Our God has all power and all authority, but he is not domineering. By his own authority, he laid down his life and took it up again in order to bring us to him. He does not use authority to harm us, but for our good. And thus, Jesus is our example in this way. As we saw in verses 2, 20 and 21, when he says that if we suffer for doing good, it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The example of doing good while suffering and suffering while doing good. How sweet that the good shepherd is himself also the best example for the flock. Now, I realize that this portion of the text is a call to men who elder. And there is plenty to say of the elders among us from this text. But the crux of these verses here is to show that Jesus is our pattern, not just for suffering and submission, but also in shepherding. If I had a few moments more, church, I would extol the faithfulness of our elders here who have sought to do these very things that Peter calls them to do. We have missed the mark at times. But I have watched every elder of this church aim straight and seek to stay the course. The brothers who have served us have sought to point us to the Lord, and we should praise God for his care to us by their shepherding. As one application of this text, let me first just point out that the elders here are to the elders here, verse 5-4, so that you may draw your heart towards heaven in this charge. That when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
Whatever else you lose in this endeavor, brothers, you will receive the reward of the gospel that you are faithfully calling us to believe. Another application is a question. Do you have elders? Because God has given the church elders to labor and their work for your care. If you don't already have them, then find them. Find elders who will point you to Jesus and then obey them. That's what we see in verse 5.5 5, with the words, be subject to your elders. And in doing so, it implies that you have them. How can you obey elders that you don't have? And if you think you do have elders, do they know that they are your elders? Because they cannot care for you as shepherds if they do not know you as sheep. Another application is that God gives elders to local churches. That's what we see in verse 2 when Peter says, Shepherd the flock that is among you. The lesson here is that Christians, even scattered throughout Asia under duress and all kinds of trials, have relations with local bodies and with shepherds who are charged with their care. Third, for those who do have pastors, obey them. If we are called to be those who will give an account for you, then listen to us when we say this. Believe the gospel. Turn from sin. Hope in Christ above all things. Find your joy and your purpose and value and strength and resolve in the Lord. Gather here every Sunday that you can. And sing like you were made for heaven. Hear the gospel. Listen for it. Hear it in the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray. Seek others out. And obey verse 14 of this text. To greet one another with a kiss of love. If not kisses, then at least heartfelt hugs. And words of encouragement. Be here, saints, every Lord's Day that you are not sick or away, and join your voices with the church. Sing to one another. Really? To one another? I thought we were supposed to sing to God. Well, yes, we are. That's true. That's the greatest commandment, but the second is like it. What, scripture, what does Scripture say in verse 3-9? But to bless, for to this you were called. So bless, lift up your voices, and bless others with the gospel. Bless from the overflow of your heart and sing. But what if you can't sing to others because you're so low? Then church, come and listen to the saints sing to you. If you're too grieved and worn to sing, then come and be sung too. Listen to me, church. Come and hear the gospel sung to you until you can begin to sing it again yourself, even ever so slightly from the heart and in your lungs, that God is good even when he is hard, that he is our shepherd even when he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. Come singing clothed in humility as we see verse 5-5, five, five, like you were made for glory. So, how will God do the hard thing and get us to heaven? First, he's a good shepherd who gives us under-shepherds. Second, we see him promise to give us heaven in verse 
6 and 10. Now, I know verse 4 is speaking directly to elders. That's true. But remember from verse 1-4, a similar promise that each of us have an inheritance that is imperishable. Each of us do. That's imperishable and undefiled and unfading. It's kept in heaven for us. This is God's heart to give us heaven, unfading glory. And verse 7 flat out says it, that he will exalt you, church. In due time, he will exalt you. After you have suffered a little while, he will exalt you. Though you are slow to believe and stray like sheep, church, he will exalt you. The Spirit will draw you back to the shepherd and overseer of your of your soul in verse 225, and he will exalt you. At the proper time, he will exalt you and give you what you don't deserve and beyond what you could ever ask for or imagine. He will exalt us after suffering and hardship, not because we've suffered, but because Christ has on our behalf, because Jesus is our pattern and he was exalted. Raised from the dead after he suffered the penalty of sin. So why exalt us? What we see in verse 10, we see why. It's because we have been called to his eternal glory in Christ. Church, do you have ears to hear this this morning? You have been called to glory. And the good shepherd is leading you there as you hear his voice. As you hear his voice, respond in faith and go where he leads. Let me connect the dots for us here. Because remember that it's hard for the righteous to be saved. Yet here, God again, in this text, is telling us that he's going to do the hard thing. He's doing what we can't do with our own good works or our self-righteousness. He is saving us because he called us to eternal glory. Verse 10 says that he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To churches who first heard this as exiles and strangers, this must have been sweet to hear. Or what about Peter, who himself was restored by Jesus in John 21 after he denied the Lord? The Lord restored him and told him, to feed his lambs and tend his sheep. And what is Peter doing here? <laughs> that very thing. Because he loves. God loves to restore. And God loves to care for his people. We need to remember that as we suffer at times, church. See verse 10 again from the beginning. That after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you, who has called you out of the feudal ways of our forefathers in verse 118 and out of the darkness in 2.9 and called us to suffer for doing good in verses 2.20-21 and 3.17 throughout the scripture here. He's the one who's called you to eternal glory and we have heaven in view. Kiddos, listen. God will not lose his people. Church, listen, he cannot lose because he's already won. Satan, that snake, is already defeated. 
That's what Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in dark, gloom, and demon dungeons in verse 319. That grace is won, death is defeated, and the church will prevail. Because we have an inheritance that is imperishable in 1.4. Because we were born again of imperishable seed in 123. Our salvation and our inheritance are described with the same word, imperishable. So let me give you three applications from these last few verses. And then two illustrations. First is to respond to the promise of eternal glory with praise. See verse 11? Peter can hardly contain himself as he breaks out in doxology when he says, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let the certainty of God's call so fill your heart that you are filled with praise. Second is for those without the Lord. Do you, maybe this is you kiddos, do you long to be exalted? Because it's not a bad desire, but the way you pursue it can be very bad. For example, it's not wrong to have money, but it's wrong to steal it out of someone's wallet. And so it is with glory. If you take from God what is not yours, it will neither last for long nor satisfy your soul. It brings destruction. But if you want glory, then ask God for it. And the God who loves to give glory, glory that you can't deserve and glory that you can't steal, will happily give it to you in Jesus. You don't have to steal it. Ask. He'll give it. Third, see in verse 510, the way that Peter characterizes what God will do for those who were called to glory when they are delivered to glory. Restoration, confirmation, strengthening, being established. Recognize that these are ultimately only realized in heaven, in glory. These are all elusive at our places of work. These are all ultimately elusive at home with your family and even here among the church. These are all but shadows in these other places. With Christ is the substance. All of these we desire each day. And while we may taste something of them now in the Lord, they won't be fully realized until glory. If your unmet longings, church, if your unmet longings for these weigh you down, then remind yourself that these are reserved for heaven. And at the proper time, God will give them. And now I want to illustrate this application in two ways. Two ways that heaven is yours already and not yet. First, kiddos, for you. This is what it's like. It's like a Christmas present under the tree. Big, beautiful box. You can hardly lift it. But if you lift it, there's something big inside of it. It's got your name all over it. That present is yours. But you can't open it until it's given. That's what heaven's like for the Christian. Whatever you can't see in the box, you can clearly see your name on it. It's already yours. 
You just need to wait until it's given to you. That's the promise of heaven for the Christian. And then one more illustration is a story from how Chad and Laura fell in love. You see, when Chad met Laura, he knew she was the one. He knew, but Laura didn't know. And when he told her that, she said something like, uh, let's be friends first. Chad describes that at first he was sad by this, but then he realized how good this actually was because he knew what the end was. And if you know what the end is, then you can wait through the process. He knew what was ahead, and then he could stay the course until the end. Church, Chad is a good example here of how we should live in light of the promise that we will be delivered to glory. This is all point one, that God is going to do the hard thing that he says in 4.18. To save the church, he's going to deliver us to the end, in glory, to glory, and for his glory. But this has been his point the whole time. He's already said this many times throughout this letter, that God is going to do this. So then, what is happening here at the end of the letter? Why this passage here? And why now? Well, it's here to tell us that he's not only going to deliver us to heaven, but he is, even now, changing us to prepare us for heaven. And this is my second point from the passage today, that God is making us ready for glory, the glory of heaven. And, as, and we'll see that with this call to humility here. We see it in verse 5.5, 5, to clothe yourselves with humility because God gives grace to the humble. And again in 5.6, to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Church, I want to show you two reasons why God would shape us in humility as he prepares us for glory. The first reason is that Jesus is our pattern for glory and that he died to himself before he rose from the grave. He did not die to sin because he had no sins to die for, but he did die in humility. He did die for us on account of our sin. Thus, by his wounds, we are healed. By his life and death, we see Jesus everywhere submitting to the Father and doing the Father's will. In verse 1-2, we see all three persons of the Trinity at work planning our salvation. And Jesus is there, his part being to die on behalf of sinners. He steps down from glory, becomes a man. He comes as a servant, becomes a slave, and dies as a criminal. Worse than a criminal, he becomes sin for us. There is no greater humiliation for a holy God than to become sin. That is our humble Jesus. The one through whom all things were made washes the disciples' feet. There's a wonder too great to explain of how, how the word of God stepped down from heaven to be the word made flesh. And how the author of life would die. And how the Lord of Lords would come not to be served, but to serve 
and give his life as a ransom for many. With all of this glory, church, what does he do? He sets it aside to save his people. Not only does our God leave the 99 to pursue the one, he leaves the glory of heaven to die for sinners. And not just sinners in the sense that no one's perfect, but sinners as in enemies of God sinners. In humility and humiliation, he takes on the guilt of his enemies so that he may bring us to God. There is no pride in Jesus, no guile, no boasting. He lays aside his glory that we may be exalted. Because in verse 7, he cares for you. Please, please look with me at your Bible. Look at what it says. It says right there in verse 7, see the words with your eyes. See them with your eyes because he cares for you. You need to hear this, church. He submits to the Father and even submits under Pontius Pilate. He submits under suffering. And while he does not submit to our demands, he submits on account of our needs, living with us in an understanding way. In all of this, he sets for us an example of how to handle the weight of glory because he came from glory and has returned to glory. Our Lord is humble and therefore the Father is making us humble too. This is why he calls us to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution in verses 2.13 and following and to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator in verse 4.19. This is why he calls us to be holy because he is holy that we might be like him so that we can be with him. But if we will be with him, then we must be humble. And if we will be humble, then we must be humiliated through submission and suffering because humility cannot be learned any other way. It is so entirely godlike that we cannot achieve it any other way. Humility is so very hard to learn, church, for we are all prone to pride. Church, it is hard for the righteous to be saved for this reason, but God will do it anyway. By his mighty hand, he will do it. It will cost him the blood of his son, and it will take an extraordinary work of the Spirit, lest we fall to temptations of the devil. The saints hear this. God will change us from the inside out by his Spirit and make us humble like Jesus so that we can be with him in glory. That's the first reason he's humbling. It's because Jesus is our pattern for heaven. A second reason to shape us in humility is to keep us from taking the pattern of Satan. Let's look again at Peter's pastoral warning and consider how dangerous the way is for us and how much we need the Lord to change us in the inner person for heaven, lest we be crushed by the weight of glory. I'm going to point you to verse 5-8, where we are called to be sober-minded and watchful because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. 
And how will he devour us? How will he consume us? By appealing to our pride, our hubris, and our vanity, which is why we are called in this immediate context to humility. And why we've been taught over the past few chapters to learn submission and to suffer while doing good. Let me show you this from Scripture by reminding you of the devil's pride and pointing you to Jesus' humility. First, we see something in the account where the devil fell from heaven because of his pride. In Ezekiel 28, verse 2 and following, we see how the devil was made a beautiful cherub, but he couldn't handle his beauty and wisdom, and it made him proud. In Ezekiel 28, it says, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Carnelian, crystallite, and emerald, topaz, onyx, and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till your wickedness found, was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence, and so you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. See here, church, how dangerous the blessings of God can be when they are not received in gratitude and humility. I need to make two quick observations here before I give you an application. The first is that Satan could not bear the weight of glory. And the glory given to him crushed him. He became prideful by the beauty and wisdom God had given him. Second, see also that when he became proud, God opposed him, which is what Peter is saying here in verse 5.5. One application from this text is to remember that our real beauty should be characterized by gentle and quiet spirits rather than outward adornment, which is what Peter told us in chapter 3 of this letter. And another is that our wisdom needs to be in the Lord and not rooted in our own understanding, which is what we saw from Proverbs over the summer. And another is that wherever you see God has given some good thing to your life or some measure of grace, church, you should return to God in thanks and be very careful that the thing given for your good does not turn into a reason for pride. All of you have measures of beauty and wisdom. All of you are image bearers of God. And all of us will be tempted by the devil to pride because of these various gifts. We are tempted when we lose them. And we are tempted when we gain them. The devil, for all his glory, was prideful. He was in glory but could not bear the weight of it, and it crushed him. 
for God opposed him. But God gives grace to the humble. So let me show you our humble Jesus. Remember how the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness? With a series of offers of fame and power. In Matthew 4, where we read of the account, which includes how the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus resisted the temptation for glory and splendor. He would have none of those if they were not by the hand of his father. Jesus deserved every single thing that he was tempted to have. But he would not receive any of them but by the will of his father. The father whom he humbly entrusted himself and suffered for while doing good. And at the proper time, God raised him up and gave Jesus the nations. Glorious. <laughs> the devil would use our pride against us because he is our adversary. Each of you know this. He would first tempt you by it, and then when you do it, he'll accuse you. And you'll stand there and think, ah, oh, but it was, I thought it was your idea. I thought it was a good idea. He will tempt you, and as soon as you buy into it, he'll accuse you. He is your adversary. Don't listen to him. Resist him, saints. Remember the devil's disgusting distortions of glory. And then wait for God to give you what is good in due time. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I have three final applications from this letter now. First, we need to put away our pride with heaven in view because the weight of glory will crush us in our pride just like it did the devil. For as we'll see next week when Caleb finishes 1 John chapter 5, love for God is to obey his commandments. Commandments which are not burdensome but they are life for us. We need to put away our pride and learn to obey God. Where are you prideful? Each of us struggle with this in different ways. It's not all the same, but it's the same spirit. Where are you prideful? Let us trust in God's commands instead. Where do you have anger or bitterness Where do you have anger and bitterness? Where's the hardness of heart? 
See. See the burden of pride on your soul. And then forsake it. Church, entrust yourself to the one true God. Casting your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. That's what we see in 5.7. Second, recognize that your anxieties are trouble. The first hearers of this letter were exiles and scattered about. We all have anxieties, but if we keep them, we will bear trouble. We need to cast them on the Lord. The application from this text is to cast our anxieties on Jesus. If we don't, then we are prone to fear and prone to doubt. And from these, we may naturally lean on our own understandings and cope with life and our own strength for survival. Church, if we don't cast our anxieties upon the Lord, we will naturally lean on our own understandings to just survive. That's not what God calls us to do. Listen to the Lord. Cast your anxieties upon him. I know what you're saying. It's hard. That's right. It is so very hard for the righteous to be saved. It costs Jesus' blood, and it will cost us the grueling work of sanctification, rooting out the pride. But church, God is going to do it. By his mighty hand, he's going to do it. It's going to hurt, though. If we don't throw our anxieties upon the Lord, we will keep them. And if we keep them, we will do bad things with them. So that even if God does provide a way of escape, we will think that it was our own wisdom that figured it out. And if he doesn't provide the way of escape the way that we expect it and the time that we demand it, then we'll grumble against God. And both of these are from pride. Cast your anxieties upon the Lord, church. You have many. I know them. You've asked us to pray for them. Cast them on the Lord. And entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And third, third, finally, the whole letter in this chapter, the way of glory is through Jesus, through suffering, the promise of glory apart from submission and apart from suffering is demonic. Remember how vile it is and resist it. Because that's what the devil promised Jesus in the wilderness. Glory without the cross. Glory without shedding any blood. It was demonic. And when we hear the same whispering serpent, glory without sanctification, without death to self, get it away from you and resist it. Flee from it because it's a lie and it will destroy your life. And, and it doesn't prepare you for glory. Jesus waited upon the Father. And in due time, he was exalted. We should follow his example and wait upon the Lord. 
Wait upon the Lord to give you the desires of your heart and do not take them by your own hand. Wait for God's way. Wait for God's timing. Wait through submission. Wait through suffering. Wait because in due time, He will exalt you. We are all exiles now. (laughs) But we will not always be so. So we're going to come to the time of our, of our service now where we celebrate that we will not always be exiles. We're going to celebrate this truth that we are not exiled from God on account of Jesus' broken body for us. And we proclaim his death until he comes because we know our full home, our perfect home, is in heaven.